0: Her Fitness Podcast. I'm your host Aoife and this is episode number 38. In today's episode, I am speaking with sleep scientist, Dr. Amy Bender, who is the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra Medical and an Adjunct Assistant Professor of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary in Canada. Amy has been working in the field of sleep research for over 15 years, so she has a world of experience behind her, and she's also been featured in interviews on both Oprah and in Paradise magazine. She has developed not only the first validated sleep screening tool for athletes, but she's also implemented sleep optimization strategies for numerous Canadian Olympic and professional teams. I am so excited about this episode because the topic of sleep comes up almost daily within my coaching group. And client calls. So it is definitely an area that a lot of you are interested in. And I know I notice a massive difference if I don't get enough sleep versus when I get enough sleep and how that can impact not only my nutrition and my hunger levels the next day, but also my training and my training performance. And I'm sure it's very similar for a lot of you. So in today's episode, we're talking all about sleep, how you can improve your sleep, the factors that affect sleep, and how lack of sleep can impact your day to day life and your training. Before we get into the episode I want to remind you to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already because every week I'll be bringing out a new episode on Tuesdays that simplifies nutrition and fitness. In the next month we'll be covering topics like food guilt, micronutrition, what to eat for overall health and I'll be interviewing guests to talk about topics like PCOS, endometriosis, nutrition for shift workers, and I've got a few client chats coming up as well. So lots of really great topics for you to get stuck into there. Finally, if you want to know more about me and my coaching programs, you can head on over to my Instagram or visit my website, which is www.empowerher.fitness, Or if you want to know a little bit more and you're confused about how it all works, the information is on the website, but you can also send me a message on Instagram and I'm more than happy to get back to you on there as well. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to pick your brains about sleep and chat all things sleep and how we can improve our sleep and how sleep impacts training and day-to-day life. Uh, But before we get into it, I wanted to start with a few questions for yourself. So first question is, what does your morning routine normally look like, Amy? Mm,
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say, actually, so I have three kids. So part of the morning routine normally when the kids are in school is my husband and I alternate. So He'll make the lunches, make the breakfast, and then the other person will walk the dog. Um, so we kind of alternate uh, every morning as to who's uh, who has what responsibilities. So that's definitely a part of my morning routine. Um I will try and do like a 20, 25 minute kind of cardio, um, no weights or anything, like push-ups, different exercises as a part of my morning routine. And, um, yeah. And then I start work pretty early. So I start at seven 45. So I usually kind of just, I uh, love a decent breakfast and I'll just basically eat my breakfast as I start my first meeting. Um, so yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy. And, um, with kids it makes it a little more
0: challenging to kind of do what you want. Yeah, that's true. But that sounds like a pretty, pretty good morning routine. <laughs> Um, next question for you. Uh, what was the best book you've read recently?
1: Um, I actually, it took me a long time, but I read the girl with the dragon tattoo recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to have a book by my nightstand or on my nightstand to just read before bedtime and we can talk about this, but, um, reading has been shown to kind of activate that parasympathetic nervous system, that relaxation system. And so I like having that book there. And even if it's really late, like if I'm getting to bed a little bit later, I'll still try and read a few pages just to kind of relax me and get into a routine uh, to help me fall asleep a little bit better.
0: Yeah. I've started doing that recently as well, because yeah, I read everywhere that Uh, reading before sleep helps your sleep. And I can definitely say it has helped. So (laughs) we'll definitely talk some more on that. And final question of these three, are you a coffee or a tea person, Amy?
1: I am a coffee person. However, I am a decaf coffee person.
0: (laughs) I was wondering Uh, about that. All right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, went through graduate school. I had uh, three kids along the way. Uh, So I had my son um, during my PhD. I had my daughter during my PhD. And then I had my third child um, during my postdoc. And so I was really drinking a lot of caffeine um, with grad school and kids, young kids. And so finally at about kind of the six month mark when my youngest was about six months. I was like, you know, I'm going to try and just go decaf and see what happens. And uh, I noticed a really big improvement in my sleep. And of course it took a few weeks to kind of transition out of caffeine, but um, I really enjoy the ritual and the taste of coffee. And I can still get that with with decaf. And so a lot of times I'll, I'll be drinking decaf coffee. Um, Or sometimes if I'm feeling really crazy, I might get a shot of caffeine (laughs) in my uh,
0: coffee drink. But yeah, I'm definitely a coffee person. Do you think even drinking coffee like early in the day in the morning has an impact on a person's sleep?
1: Well, it really depends on how you metabolize caffeine. There are slow metabolizers of caffeine where it could take up to 12 hours to, you know, maybe even longer to get that out of your system. Um, So, and for other people, it's not a big deal. It's not a problem. Although I would say there's been some work to show that subjectively people can, they say, okay, I can drink a coffee at 7 PM and it's not going to impact my sleep. But, um, in reality, when we do look at their sleep quality, it, it, it is impacted potentially. So, um, Yeah. It's tricky to be able to test that without looking at your sleep objectively. Um, So my kind of advice is, well, what happens when you don't do it? Do you notice a difference? And, you know, if you do notice a difference, then maybe you want to um, drink caffeine a little bit more strategically. And if you don't really notice a the difference, then maybe you are potentially that fast metabolizer of caffeine. Um, there are ways to test that too. So with a saliva sample, you can send it into like a nutrigenomics uh, company, and then they can tell you what what type of caffeine metabolizer you are. And of course, there's many different genes related to that. Um, So it's not just one particular gene that tells you how you metabolize caffeine. It's
0: a bit more complicated. Wow. Very interesting. Well, I guess the easiest way probably then is just to trial decaf or not having coffee for a period of time and to see what difference it makes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, Amy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your background, what exactly you do?
1: Yes. So I, um, I'm a sleep scientist. I started in the sleep field about 15 years ago where I was a sleep technologist working for a sleep deprivation laboratory, a research laboratory. So that was really excited, exciting for me. Um, I would hook up participants with all these various electrodes. And when you you would see the physiological signals on the screen, and then it was just so interesting to me to see these different states of sleep and how, um, you know, non REM sleep look differently from REM sleep. And we would see those rapid eye movements occurring during REM sleep. Uh, so it was really quite exciting. And the studies that we were doing were interesting as well. So we did a 62 hour sleep deprivation study where people had to stay awake for two full nights without sleep, um, and so that really got me interested in the sleep field. I ended up getting my master's and PhD in experimental psychology while working at that sleep lab. Um, and then did a postdoc at University of Calgary. So I'm originally from the US, um, got my degree at Washington State University, and then went up to Canada for a postdoc to work with elite athletes and their sleep in Canadian Olympic team athletes. Um, and then After that, I worked for a counseling center. So I was the main research scientist at the counseling center and really interested in how can sleep interventions better impact mental health. Um, And then after that, I have currently been in a role at Cerebra as the director of clinical sleep science, which really it's sleep full time. I'm able to work with athletes in their sleep. It's really an, an amazing opportunity for me. And, um, we have, we are a sleep technology company. We're a startup. So we're working on different ways to improve diagnosis and treatment of sleep disorders, like insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea, but also we're working on a digital therapeutic. So a wearable EEG device that someone can put on their forehead and wear, you know, multiple days at a time and looking at sleep quality on a much more fine grained analysis. Versus even just looking at the sleep stages, we're looking at it on a three second level and we're looking at these changes, you know, um, all throughout the night in all the different stages of sleep and are better able to kind of correlate the sleep quality with daytime functioning using some of our EEG metrics. So it's really exciting for me to ultimately try and help as many people as possible to sleep better.
0: Wow. Very interesting area. Can I ask about the sleep deprivation study that you mentioned? What were the results that he found of that?
1: It it was very interesting. I think one thing that I learned early on was the impact of um, circadian rhythms and the homeostatic process. So uh, these are the two main processes that affect our sleep. And so the homeostatic process is kind of the longer you've been awake the more adenosine that builds up in the brain, which kind of makes you sleepy. So you have this sleep pressure, uh, the longer you've been awake. And then when you go to sleep, it, that sleep pressure dissipates so that hopefully by the time you wake up in the morning, you know, you'll be ready to go for the day, Mm -hmm. but there's also the circadian element as well. So circadian is kind of, it's independent of prior sleep, wake history, and it's just your overall rhythms throughout a 24 hour period. And so some people are more evening types. So their melatonin, it's going to be released later. Um, and so their circadian rhythm may be a little bit longer than someone who's more of a morning type who has melatonin released a bit earlier. And it was interesting to me because during these studies, you know, we'd be at, let's say hour, uh, 59, um, and these people would be wide awake. And it was so interesting to me because when you compare that to hour 20 in the middle of the night, 4.00 AM, um, you know, they're not very alert at all. And it was the circadian rhythm that was regulating that. Whereas when we're looking at 8.00 PM on hour 59 or hour 60, they were wide awake and it was that circadian rhythm, um, that really influenced the alertness and the sleepiness throughout the day. And it wasn't just related to that sleep pressure because obviously 59 hours of being awake, you have a very, very high sleep pressure, but it was that circadian rhythm that was interacting that kind of helped them, you know, be a little bit more alert than if it was, for example, four in the morning.
0: Wow. Very interesting. Can you explain to the listeners how circadian rhythm acts with sleep, like how it impacts sleep?
1: Mm -hmm. So, uh, circa is about, and then dia is day. So circadian is about a day. So about 24 hours, most of us have rhythms longer than 24 hours. Um, some of us have rhythms shorter than 24 hours, and those are kind of associated with being a night owl and being an early bird, as I mentioned. Um, but it's that light that helps regulate our circadian rhythms. And so, if you're getting lots of light during the day and the morning hours, you're setting your circadian rhythms up for the day. Okay. It's daytime. I'm supposed to be awake. Um, and it actually strengthens your signals at night when you're supposed to be asleep. So, it can help improve sleep quality. Um, and so, However, light at the wrong time can impact your circadian rhythms as well. So, about two hours before we go to sleep, our melatonin starts to be released. And that's our sleepiness hormone. That's darkness hormone. When it's dark out, we start to release melatonin. Um, And it's that light right before bedtime can be problematic. Um, And there is a bit of a debate, I would say, in the sleep field with does light really impact your sleep that much? And I think me personally, I think it it does impact your your sleep. And we are starting to make those types of discoveries. Um, And previous research has shown maybe with, let's say, actigraphy, you're wearing a watch, that there's not much of a difference between when you use electronic devices before bedtime and when you don't. But we're not actually looking at sleep on an EEG level where sleep is occurring. And so if we were to use more of these fine-grained metrics, we would be able to see an impact of these electronic devices at night. And I was actually just meeting with a circadian researcher yesterday, and um, he he's developing a new device, um, and he's actually based in Monash, Sean, Dr. Sean Kane. Uh, developing a light device that can capture your light history throughout the day. So you wear it on your sweater, your shirt, and, um, it's able to kind of track the light that you're getting throughout the day. And eventually they want to be able to make recommendations and, um, be able to tell someone, okay, it looks like right before bedtime, you're getting this huge light, you know, you're turning on those bathroom lights, you're brushing your teeth. Um, and he was telling me that they're finding that that light before night, typically with the bathroom lighting and the bedroom lighting, do impact people's sleep, especially during that first sleep cycle. Um, so yeah, I guess long long story short, um, light does impact our circadian rhythms, and it's really important to get that light timing right. Getting a lot of it during the morning. And then also trying to eliminate some of that light um, at night, closer to night.
0: So before bed, people should be like spending less time, I guess, on electronics and have less severe lights turned on in the home in order to improve their sleep.
1: Yes. Um, so dimming lights, if you can, if you have that option, um, more of a yellow, uh orangey hue type of light, because the I didn't mention this, but blue light is the wavelength that we're most sensitive to, our circadian rhythms are most sensitive to, and the, that is the light emitted from our LED lights, for example. I mean, there's a full spectrum, but uh, blue light is, is an element of that, and blue light from our screens and our devices are um, what our circadian rhythms are most sensitive to, and so that's what we need to be aware of. But also it's about the content that you're watching as well. So it's not just about the light being emitted from the devices, but it's also, are you watching the news right before bedtime? You know, it's about that content as well, um, which can be problematic.
0: Okay. Yeah. And can you explain for the listeners a bit more about the various stages of sleep, like what happens early in the night and what happens later in the night in regards to sleep cycles?
1: There is non-REM sleep and there is REM sleep. So sleep is divided into kind of these two categories. Non-REM sleep is um, happening. There are three main stages occurring within non-REM sleep. So there's stage one, which is the lightest stage of sleep. There's stage two, which takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night um, and maybe would be considered a lighter stage of sleep. And then stage three is the deepest stage of sleep. So that's where big slow waves are occurring. slow wave activity. This is where growth hormone is being released. Tissues are being repaired during that sleep stage. Um, and then we have REM sleep as well. So rapid eye movement, so non REM non rapid eye movement sleep, and then REM is rapid eye movement sleep and REM sleep is where you're dreaming typically, although we can dream in any stage of sleep. Uh, REM is where you'd wake up and you'd remember your dream. Um, and a lot of memories are being encoded during REM, REM learning is occurring, et cetera, as well as during um, slow-wave sleep or deep sleep as well, that's stage three. And so we cycle from non-REM to REM in about 90 to 110 minutes across the night. So we'll start off in that lighter stage of sleep. So stage one, get into stage two. Um, may go back up to stage one to get into stage three, that deepest stage of sleep and may cycle through stage two, stage three, but have a lot of that stage three, that deepest stage of sleep occurring in the first half of the night. So usually within the two, the first two sleep cycles of non-REM to REM is where a lot of that deep sleep is occurring. And then as the night goes on, You know, although we do cycle from non-REM to REM in 90 to 110 minutes, um, we do have a lot of our REM occurring in the last half of the night. So the REM periods get bigger as you go on um, during the night. And interestingly, I think during the pandemic, people shifted their sleep schedules a little bit later and um were able had more flexible schedules. They weren't having to commute into work. So they were going to bed a little bit later sleeping in a little bit later and getting, you know, around 10 minutes more of sleep per night on average. And what we found, you know, what the research found was that, um, they were dreaming more, they were reporting that they were dreaming more. And I think that probably had to do with maybe a little bit more sleep but also potentially kind of shifting their schedule a little bit later, which meant that they were, you know, dreaming more in those morning hours, probably getting more REM sleep um, in the last half of the night.
0: Is there a correlation between dreaming more and better sleep quality then?
1: That's a good question. I mean, that is something we're interested in as well. And we have metrics to look at sleep quality within REM sleep, sleep specifically, um, because currently there's, uh, it's called Delta power, slow wave activity. Um, so this is kind of the amount of power within these waves occurring during the deepest stage of sleep stage three, um, And they measure it across non REM specifically, but they just kind of forget about REM. You know, there's not really, it's like, uh, this Delta power is a function of sleep quality and it's been, it's been a good metric so far, but we're kind of ignoring a lot of what's occurring during REM sleep. And so one of the metrics that we have odds ratio products, so ORP, we're looking at this, uh, sleep quality within REM sleep, which is really interesting for us. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, typically, yeah, I I actually, I don't know if, um, more dreaming is related to better quality sleep. I would say I would lean towards, yes, that would be the answer because you are, um, potentially sleeping more and could be dreaming more at the
0: end of the night. Okay, interesting area. And is there an optimal number of hours sleep that a person should be aiming for?
1: Yes. Uh, So adults want to aim between seven and nine hours. And as you um, get younger, so teens would be more like eight to 10. School-age children would be more like nine to 11 um and so the younger you are the more sleep that you need and then the older you get the less sleep that you need however you do want to try and hit that minimum 7 hour requirement um and it's it's tricky like i don't think we we need to do a lot better in this i mean 7 to 9 hours that's a huge range you know that's a 2 hour range where um this is the recommended amount and it is it is challenging to try and figure out the amount of sleep that you need. But I think um, we're working on that on an EEG level to see, like, are there characteristics in the brain that is telling us, okay, it looks like this person has um, met their sleep need and they could wake up now. Um, but obviously, we don't have that technology in play just quite yet for the general public. So I would say if someone is waking up without an alarm, that's probably a good sign that you're getting enough sleep, that you're getting good quality sleep, that the timing of your sleep is is great. Um, also potentially how, how different does your sleep look like on the weekends? So that's another sign. So if I'm sleeping in two hours on the weekends, it's likely that I'm not getting enough sleep during the week. And so that's a sign of social jet lag is what we call it. Um, where if their schedule differs a lot on the weekend versus the weekdays or free days versus, um, work days, uh, we start to see some kind of negative impacts of that because our body our body and our brain don't know when we should be awake and when we should be asleep if we're altering our schedule a lot. So that's a really important tip for people is to try and keep your sleep schedule as consistent as possible. And what I'm finding in the research is around 90 minutes. you know you want to be, pretty similar as much as you can but if let's say on the weekend you sleep in for 90 minutes it's not a big deal um
0: but going beyond that time and time again can be a bit of a problem that was actually going to be my next question about um you know keeping your sleep schedule consistent uh because i have read that and a question that i have following on from that is um say if a person isn't getting enough sleep during the week and then they sleep in at the weekend, can you recover that sleep debt that you've missed out on during the week? Or is it better to just consistently get enough sleep every day?
1: I mean, ideally you want to get as consistent of sleep as possible, but realistically, you know, that doesn't happen all the time. Um, so I do believe that you can make up for lost sleep. And I do believe that you can actually bank sleep leading into sleep deprivation. And the research has kind of confirmed that, that if you can get more sleep leading into, let's say a travel where you're going to be struggling with jet lag, um, you're going to be sleep deprived because you have an early morning flight or for athletes, if you have an important competition and you may not sleep well, right before the game, Um, getting more sleep and extending your sleep a little bit leading into that competition or jet lag is going to help you perform better than if you were to get your normal amount of sleep. Um, But there are sleep scientists out there that say you can't bank sleep. You can't make up for lost sleep. I think it's a matter of almost semantics. So paying off sleep debt versus banking sleep and getting it in advance, I think it's all the same thing, but the research is really clear that you can do that. You just don't want to do that too much. And, you know, as I mentioned with social jet lag, um, they found that inconsistent sleepers, they looked at college students and those who had very inconsistent sleep schedules versus those who had a regular sleep schedule. Both groups had the same amount of sleep but it was the inconsistency that was the difference. And they found that those irregular sleepers had poorer grades. They had more mood disturbances. They, um, you know, had more metabolic problems. And so you, you do want to, um, make that, I guess, the exception more than the rule, um, preparing for some of these important events. Yes. Um, but, to do it on a weekly can, you know, sleeping in three hours on the weekend is probably not a good idea.
0: Okay. Going back to what you mentioned there about the negative effects of inconsistent sleep, can you elaborate a bit more for the listeners on what impact lack of sleep can have on say cognitive performance and training performance?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I usually do a presentation for athletes and I'll, um, mention a few of these things that can impact their performance. Um, one would be reaction time. I think that's a big one. So lack of sleep can cause slower reaction time. It can increases lapses of attention. So where you're kind of zone out for a second, um, And so the research has shown that's pretty clear. It can also impact decision-making in particular, um, allow you to make riskier decisions without even realizing it. So there's been some studies showing that sleep deprivation increases the amount of risky decision-making. And when they ask these people, do you think you're making riskier decisions? They report that not to be the case. So They're making these riskier decisions without even realizing it is, is one, um, which in the context of certain sports, you know, such as like freestyle skiing or, um, half pipe, et cetera. I think, I think that could really make a difference, um, in, in their performance potentially, um, as far as other, other, um, impacts. So, uh, growth hormone, testosterone, are all impacted by uh, sleep loss, as well as you know, ghrelin and leptin, those appetite hormones in particular. So, with sleep loss, we see a decrease in leptin, kind of that feeling of being full. We see an increase in ghrelin, the feeling of being hungry with sleep loss. And actually, there's about a 400 calorie increase with sleep deprivation in, in a lot of these studies that we're seeing. So those changes in appetite hormones then lead to craving more fats, craving more sugars. Um, and actually, uh, also can, can I can never pronounce this, but canon cannabinoids, um, li- getting the munchies literally like they see <laughs> increases in the brain in, in those, um, neurotransmitters. So, yeah, it is. It, it can be very impactful for an athlete to optimize their sleep, which then leads to better nutrition, better decision making, uh, quicker reaction time, and overall just better physical performance. Mm-hmm.
0: I find it very interesting that some people never struggle with sleep and, you know, they can easily sleep like eight hours a night, never have problems falling asleep, whereas there are other people who. Um, just the slightest change will impact their sleep. And I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this podcast episode on sleep probably fall into the latter category and maybe have some struggles with sleep. So, do you have any pointers for people to help with, um, say, if people are struggling to fall asleep or people who struggle with staying asleep, you know, maybe waking up too early in the morning? Anything they mm-hmm. can be doing in their day to day life or any supplements they should be taking?
1: Yeah. Um- Well, I think having a kind of suite of, um, like almost like a middle of the night routine that someone could do to include a cognitive technique. So getting their thoughts off of being wide awake, uh, would be important doing some breathing techniques. And then if about 20 minutes has passed and they're still not falling asleep, the best thing to do would be to get up out of bed and do a relaxing activity in low light, such as reading a paper book in low light. Um, And so for me, I have a three-year-old and he will wake me up occasionally during the middle of the night and I'll be wide awake and, um, you know, really trying to get back to sleep. So for me, I do the four, seven, eight breathing technique, so you breathe in for four seconds, you hold your breath for seven seconds and you breathe out for eight seconds. You repeat that four times. Um, the important part here is that you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in. And that helps activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So you could even do something like snake breathing where you breathe in and then hiss out. Cause it's a lot slower coming out. So having a breathing route, uh, technique in your toolbox would be a good thing to implement when you wake up during the middle of the night. And even when you're trying to fall asleep and you're having issues, but also doing a cognitive technique. So for me, I like the cognitive shuffle where I think of a word such as bedtime. And I imagine all the objects that I can that start with that first letter. So B, ball, baby, bus, banana. And I'm imagining these objects As I'm thinking of them, as it relates to this letter, then I move on to the next letter when I can't think of any more. So E, eagle, egg, ear, then you move on to D and so on. Um, And so that really helps take your mind off of being awake. And it also, as we fall asleep, we do see these kind of images in our brain. So it helps kind of simulate that as well. But of course, there's times where even those two techniques work. So I'll get up out of bed. I will do a relaxing activity. And there's times even where I don't even return back to bed because I'm not sleepy enough. And in those instances, I will schedule a 20 minute nap to help get me through that sleep deprivation. And napping is really, really great. uh, Especially after a poor night's sleep, I'm not going to one thing I will do is avoid uh, caffeine because I know that could exacerbate the cycle. So if I wake up, have a bad night's sleep, I'm not going to be going for that venti, venti, you know, coffee. I'm actually going to purposefully avoid caffeine so that it will help me fall asleep, help me relax that night. Um, so yeah, having those techniques is is really important. I think also keeping in mind, how, how long has this been occurring? So has it been, been occurring? Is it occurring three days per week? Has it been occurring for at least three weeks? You know, um, and it, it, are you waking up three times during the night? There's kind of this rule of three. And so if that's the case, you probably want to get help from a sleep professional and not try and solve it on your own. And I think the earlier you can get help, the better to um, potentially use a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is kind of the gold standard for insomnia treatment. Um, And yeah, I I think depending on how um, long it's been occurring, it's not a
0: bad thing if you can get help from a sleep professional. Mm -hmm. Okay, really good points there and really good ideas for people to try if they are struggling with sleep. So thanks for that and uh, so we talked about how coffee can impact sleep how light can impact sleep and um, can i ask you a bit more about other factors that might impact sleep such as like does eating later in the day impact a person's sleep quality have you found
1: there's really mixed results out there on this so there are certain people who do well you know not eating after dinner time and do fine but there are other people who it could be waking them up during the middle of the night because of low glucose levels, potentially. So for other people, a snack, a you know, um, hundred calorie snack before bedtime is going to be really much better than fasting for long periods of time before bed. So I think it's, it's individual. And in, there was one study, I think in, um, it was rugby athletes, I believe. And they found that, um, indeed there was poor sleep quality in those who didn't eat past dinner time. So I think depending on the person as well, if you're consuming a lot of calories or sorry, if you're exercising a lot during the day, you know, it could be that, that snack before bedtime, maybe beneficial for blood glucose levels. Um, you know, and prevent weight, having you wake up during the middle of the night. But again, it's, it's really individual. Um, mm-hmm. oh, you mentioned, uh, sorry, you mentioned supplements previously in your, in your last question, um, magnesium. I've actually done a lot of research into different supplements because full disclosure, I am on a scientific advisory board for a supplement company and they are developing a sleep product and so I did do a lot of research into, um, different supplements and actually magnesium is one that a lot of us are very deficient in and could be leading to awakenings during the middle of the night. So that's something for people to look into as well as, and your magnesium levels,
0: potentially supplementing with that, uh, also tart, sorry to interrupt you with oh, magnesium because there are a few different types of magnesium, is there one in particular that is more effective for sleep?
1: Yes, actually magnesium glycinate. So glycinate on its own um, has been shown to improve sleep quality. And so magnesium glycinate is my go-to when it comes to magnesium, because it's also easier type to, to digest as well. There isn't as many like gastrointestinal symptoms related to that one. And the glycinate
0: itself has been shown to improve sleep quality. Okay. Other supplements that I've heard of in relation to sleep would be like passionflower and lemon balm. What are your thoughts on those ones?
1: Oh, you know, I, I looked into those and I think there, there are a lot of mixed results within the literature. So I think some, some studies, well, Number one, there's not that many studies out there, (laughs) but of the studies that are out there, they're a bit mixed results. So there may be kind of individual differences in how someone reacts to those particular um, herbs. Okay.
0: So magnesium, you said, is a good one. Is there anything else that you've researched that you found is quite good with regards to sleep?
1: Yes. So tart cherry, tart cherry, actually, I found a lot in the research to improve sleep quality. And especially there's been some research in people with insomnia and they find that on average, their sleep will increase by 60 minutes, I think was one of the studies uh, of what they found. And I think, um, you have to be careful though, um, about, The quality, you know, of course supplements, there's a lot out there that's not very good. So I think you have to be aware of that, but in particular, tart cherry concentrate has been shown to be good as well as, um, tart cherry juice with these Montmorency, um, cherries. So that would be something someone could look for. And then melatonin too, I think in certain instances, And again, um, you do have to be careful about the brand that you're using and also the fact that you don't need a lot of melatonin. So a physiological dose, so what our body would be naturally producing would be about 0.5 milligrams of melatonin. And for me, I don't go beyond, well, number one, I don't really use melatonin unless I'm using it for jet lag. But for the people I'm working with, um, I wouldn't go beyond three milligrams. Um, and I've actually worked with an NBA team who um, they were giving their athletes, you know, 10 milligrams of melatonin, which is a, a large amount of melatonin. And so people should probably try and limit the melatonin that they're using and avoid you know, I typically don't go beyond three milligrams. Um, yeah. So something to, to look out for would be magnesium, melatonin, and potentially uh, tart cherry juice, which helps naturally
0: produce melatonin. Okay. Awesome. And I guess um, as always to consult their health professional, if thinking about supplementing as yes, well. Yes.
1: Yes. I'm not i um, I'm not an MD. I'm a scientist. So yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> for sure. And um, and a final question for you then is, um, this is just a question that came in from a listener, actually. And um, so Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. Um, do you have any thoughts on um, that book and, you know, what he says about um, people sleeping less than seven hours and how negatively that can impact their overall health?
1: Well, There has, in that first edition of that book, there were a lot of mistakes occurring within that book, um, and a lot of exaggerations based on the research. Now, I know he was working on correcting that. So I think in the current, in the current edition, which I haven't actually read, um, I think a lot of those have been corrected. Um, So Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. He is a person who doesn't believe you can make sleep. Um, doesn't meet, doesn't believe you can make up for lost sleep. Um, but you know, let's take parents, for example, they are fully sleep deprived when you have a newborn baby and yet they're not, um, dying sooner than someone else, you know? So I think we have to kind of keep it in context. And even people with insomnia, there's been studies to show that they don't die quicker or have poor mortality rates versus those people without insomnia. Um, So, yeah, I think we have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. And I think we're talking about very long-term chronic sleep deprivation where we start to see a lot of these diseases pop up, for example, or quicker mortality, you know, there, there is research to support that short sleep duration is, is related to mortality versus someone who's getting between seven and eight hours of sleep, for example. Um, but I think it's more of that long-term chronic sleep disturbances that can lead to a lot of those issues. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be prioritizing sleep. I think we should, and it helps our mood and our performance and our daytime functioning, et cetera. But a poor night's sleep here or there is not going to break you.
0: I think that's a great point to end on, because I do think that, you know, the more research there is done on sleep, the better, obviously, but people can take it to the extreme as well where they start to really get worried about Uh, the quality of their sleep, the impact their sleep is going to have on their health, and maybe just become a bit more anxious around sleep because of that. Whereas what we need to do is just take a step back and understand that, yes, sleep is important. You know, do what you can to optimize your sleep, but not to be overly focused on trying to be perfect about your sleep either.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we didn't really talk about uh, wearable devices, but I think that can play into that as well where people will become obsessed with what their wearable is telling them when in reality, these wearables are not very accurate. Um, now that's not to say that there's no utility in using them. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but I'll get people messaging me all the time. You know, it looks like my deep sleep is 5%. Like what should I do? Or my REM sleep is, you know, only 10%. Like what happened? I only got five minutes of REM during the night. And, you know, I could guarantee that if I hook them up to an EEG, looking at their brainwave activity during the night, that they would be having more than 10 minutes REM, um, during the night. And so the wearables have been shown to be good for total sleep duration. And certain ones are better at, um, capturing how long it takes you to fall asleep, but where they are lacking is as it relates to the sleep stages. So they aren't as good at detecting, deep sleep versus REM sleep. And I know they're getting better, but they just aren't quite there yet. So I think it it can be useful though in, um, instances where you're trying different interventions, let's say you want to test, is it better if I snack right before bedtime, you know, just like we were talking about, um, then you may be able to see some of these changes occurring, um, but to take it as is that I'm only getting, you know, 5% REM is, is just not accurate. I think you can look at those changes across time, but, um, yeah, just to take it, um, with a grain of salt and to not let the data like dictate how you feel about your sleep to really, instead of reaching straight for that phone and finding your readiness score, for example, to really kind of think about, oh yeah, look, it seemed like I did get a really good night's sleep last night, like evaluating it yourself ahead of time before going straight to the data. And, um, just keep in mind that there are some issues with the accuracy and we don't want it freaking people out and making them more anxious about their sleep.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because I wear an aura ring and when I first started using it, I would always check it first thing, and be like, oh my gosh, my sleep is terrible. My REM sleep. But yeah, as you said, it's better to just look at the the length of sleep. And I do think um, what you said is true about, you know, it's not really being a good gauge of the cycles of your sleep and the length of your REM sleep and so on, because it does yeah, it doesn't really correlate with how you feel. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Amy. I feel like there's been a lot of really great info there and a lot of um, fantastic advice around sleep. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I love I love getting this information out to people. I think it's really important to educate people on the importance of sleep. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you, you know, doing this podcast and kind of getting great information
0: out to your listeners. So thanks for having me. Uh, And can I ask before you go, um, where can the listeners find some more information on what you do? So
1: I am um, on social media. I'm at Twitter and Instagram at sleep4sport. That's the number four. I'm also working on a website, uh, sleepintowin.com. Um, I'm actually working with someone right now who's helping me with that. So I'm hoping within the next month or so that I'll be be having some content on that website as well. Awesome.
0: Great. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's guest interview. I really loved this chat with Dr. Amy and I hope you learned as much as I've learned from it because I really found it so, so interesting to listen to her and just take away all those little tips she's given about improving sleep. And honestly, I think the biggest one for me personally has been trying to limit the use of technology later in the evening. At the moment and for the last few weeks, what I've started doing is, committing to reading about 20 pages of my book every night. And to be honest, I've noticed the biggest difference in my sleep just from doing that alone. So get yourself a good book. The best book I've read recently is American Dirt. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen that on my story. Uh, But if you can find a good book, get into that and start reading before bed, it definitely does help with sleep. Anyway, that's all for me today. I will speak to you guys in the next episode.